Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Wallingford, I haven't been here in a long time. It's been a while. We'll kind of get the echo. It's dramatic, though. It's a dramatic effect. Um, this morning, uh, just to, to share briefly, is a little unique, um, and so I want to give a particular shout out to our West Seattle Expression. Our West Seattle Expression um, is having their uh, live streamed, they're streaming this in as we speak. So West Seattle, I love you. I'm excited that we're all worshiping together. And we're doing that because uh, this morning we did have a little bit of a, of a moment of Andrew. He ended up getting food poisoning this morning. So would you pray for Andrew? Uh, he is not feeling very well right now. So hopefully we can, he'll recover and he'll recover well. Um, but in that mean, it, because of that, it means that uh, we're working things out and we're really thankful for all of the technology that we have. I mean, like praise God for that, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So with that said, um, if you would open your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. If you have a physical copy, if you have, a, you know, uh, it's on your phone, something, turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be hanging out in verses 5 through 25 this morning. And instead of doing, having a scripture focus or having someone read through the scripture passage for us, we're going to be walking through it together. And we're going to be doing that because we're just going to see how this story and this narrative kind of unfolds before us. This is the beginning of a Luke. This is official beginning of Luke's narrative. Before last week, we got to see his, his famous historic introduction, his famous introduction of the narrative of events that he wants to put before uh, his people, put before the church of the story of Jesus Christ and how the story of Jesus is for sinners and sufferers. And so in the beginning of Luke, of Luke chapter one, we're kind of brought into this opening story. Now, I want to connect the two, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for a minute by talking a little bit about themes within narratives. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Hamilton, the play Hamilton, yet I, did, I, I might have heard a woo. I don't know if I did. I think I did. Now I feel like I did. Um, theater, this, this Hamilton show is, is awesome, right? It's super popular, and it's really popular because it's doing one thing really well, that it is conveying this theme, these little themes all throughout the narrative. So the theme that you could say in Hamilton is the question of who gets to tell the story, right? Who gets to tell the story? Is someone else telling your own story? the story that will get passed down to generations from generations because history has its eyes on you, right? I'm not going to sing it for you, but that's kind of how it is. Now, the way that you see these, this theme all throughout, kind of throughout the whole play, is images pop up in the story itself. And this is theater. This is the theater technique, is that everything on the stage has to serve a purpose to tell the grander story, so you have a quill that constantly shows up and is constantly given to Alexander Hamilton, 
right? In the beginning of every movement comes a quill handed to him. And the other image that we see is the bar stool. The storytelling is always formated and always happens in the company of someone, of, of the company of the people telling their story, sitting down. So we have these two images that are before us. Now, the thing is, the wonderful thing about stories is that every story has images placed in them to display a greater theme of that narrative. And if we're looking back in the Old Testament, an image is brought before us. It's that of a coming sunrise. In Malachi chapter 4, we have a moment where this is the last book of the Bible. This is the last prophecy of the Old Testament that we see, which is then going to follow it and a night, a spiritual night, a spiritual darkness that's going to come. But Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, he says this, but for you who fear my name, this is talking of the Lord, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. We have an image of a sunrise. And then there's silence for over 400 years. And Luke's gospel, Luke wants to present a new image before us to consider. And it's that of an older couple and a woman who for many years has tried but has never had a child. A woman who is barren and suffering. And that image displays a beautiful theme of the gospel that we get to see, which is grace removing disgrace. So in this beginning of this story, we are opened up with two images before us. Darkness from a sun that is set and a woman who has never and long desired to have a child. But Luke wants to show us that the sun is about to rise. In the beginning of our passage, we're opened with this couple. We get to meet them, Zachariah and Elizabeth, where we can see these two themes at play. It's devotion and desire. Would you draw your attention with me to verses 5 through 7? In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So we're brought into this narrative of two couple, this couple who are dearly loved and respected by the community, but something about them is kind of losing their sheen. Something about their, their, their presence is losing, losing some of the hope that they would once have. Now, it's important for us to consider, to hang on to that verse in, in, um, when it says King Herod. King Herod was an evil king. Okay, so in the days of King Herod, that very beginning, 
in the days of King Herod, we are going to be brought to a very spiritually dark, spiritually oppressed night. It is not a good season. It's not in the days of sunflowers and roses. It's not like in the days of a multitude of joy and happy people. It's in the days of King Herod. That means a lot of people died. This is the King Herod who would go off and um, kill all of the babies, all the infants, right? This is that King Herod that we're going to experience. It was dark. It was bad. But in verse 6, we're also supposed to take mind of something. Verse 6 is an unusual phrase that we hardly ever hear in the scriptures, and it's something worth noting about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it's this. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. Friends, that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. No one just follows all of the commands of the Lord without failing, right? There's, there needs, there's something powerful there, something to draw us into this couple, and in society, they would recognize that by giving them, because he was a priest and she was the daughter of a priest, they would give them double honor. This was a, this was a position, a cultural position of double honor. But I mentioned it had been losing its sheen. That double honor had been growing kind of dull. Why? Because of the information we have in verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive. To an ancient Jewish time, to be put in a position of double honor meant there was double expectation. And when that, un, in that, when, when that expectation was unfulfilled, it was double shame, double disappointment. Everyone walking along the streets when Elizabeth would come out would say, that's, the, that's Elizabeth, that's who we respect dearly, but she can't have kids. Do you feel that? How would that feel to you walking around knowing that everyone's looking at you and the hope that they have in your community is unmet because of your deepest insecurity? That's the couple that we have. That's Elizabeth. But they were blameless and they were righteous in God's sight. And so what we find is this image of a couple who are going through tremendous difficulties and unfulfilled desires, praying and living lives of devotion, and they're working out their contentment through their disappointment. They were a devoted couple to the Lord and to their countrymen. And that devotion, we're going to find, is held throughout the whole story and kind of giving this theme of grace coming and removing disgrace from people kind of woven in through this whole, this whole story. Their devotion is seen clearly, but so is their shame. 
Now, another element of that, and another insecurity of this, is that despite all of the devotion, despite these, these, um, these prayers, is that Zechariah was a priest. And because Zechariah is a priest, he is going to the temple, he's going to the sanctuary, he's, he's praying on behalf of Israel, he's praying on behalf of himself, he has a big job. But what's been happening for the past 400 years? Silence has been happening. So the majority of Zechariah's life, the majority of Zechariah's life, his prayers were not answered immediately. Think about that. He didn't go to his Bible study and say, I have a praise today. God has answered my prayer yesterday. Every Bible study, every moment that he was walking in faith would be filled with a persistence in prayer because he was waiting. What a temptation to think that God has forgotten about you. What a temptation to think that God is not listening. But there's something beautiful about this persistent couple who despite all of their insecurities, despite all of the pain and suffering that they're going through, would push through their contentment and push through their disappointment to constantly put in prayer. Most of the time, when we are experiencing a waiting period of God's prayers not being, or something not being answered, this couple should give us a strong hope for the ways that God speaks and the way that God answers these prayers. I don't know if you've heard, but someone, um, and, I, and by someone, I really do mean someone. I have no idea who they are. But they said, God answers prayers three ways. Yes, no, maybe later, depending on who you heard it from, or not right now, right? He kind of asks in those different ways. There are those dynamics at play. And there's something to be said about that happening in this moment because Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers would be answered, but it would not be in the way that they would expect. But let's see the plays of, of prayer and provision. Let's read together verses 8 through 10. 8 through 10, we see prayer and provision at work. It says, When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So let's just pause here because we just came out of 1 Samuel. We just came out of 1 Samuel, and what do we get to see? Nothing just happens. Nothing just happens when God is doing a bunch of stuff. There's a subtle providence that we just learned about that is right here. And let me show you how. Zechariah was not the only priest in this town. He was one of likely to be 80 other priests. And 80 other, all these, this 80 group of priests, they would all come to the temple and then they would draw lots on who would enter and burn the incense and pray, right? Put it this way. 
it's likely to assume that there were far more days that Zechariah walked home than he did walked into the temple praying. There was a lot of days when the expectation and the hope of ministry of how he would serve his people was given to someone else so that he would walk home by himself. But it happened that on this occasion, he was chosen. So our antennas should be up to see what exactly is going to happen. So he goes in, he goes in, and he begins to pray. And now this is a really fun dynamic that I think we see. I don't know if you guys like routines. Some people are drawn to routines and some people are not drawn to routines. I love routines. I would even consider sleep to be a routine because I value routines like that. It's not just something I do. It's something that ritually happens. It's a routine thing that we all do. But what happens when my sleep, my wonderful routine of sleep is disrupted, especially in one of those moments when you're sleeping as a parent and then you feel the presence of someone staring at you. And, and it's like every scary movie when you look down and there's just a child like <laughs> staring at the end of your bed <laughs> and, and, you know, and you're jolted. It's terrifying. And I can't reason them out of doing that. Like, you know, it's just, it's scary when you do that. But now what they've also, but my kids have, give me a minute. Okay. At, what they've now begun to do is now they walk like a stealth cat. They try to like go into the covers of the bed. And then, so that's also creepy because you wake up and their face is like right there, you know, <laughs> staring at you. So you have these you have these routines, you have these moments, you have these expectations, but then you also, let's make that spiritual. When we're praying, there's a temptation for us to think that the same result that we've been praying for is going to happen again. That we're not really going to get surprised. There's a temptation to feel that the desires we have are really not being heard and that God is not near but far off. And God is waiting to surprise us. There's a promise that the Lord makes to us in Jeremiah 33. When we think about how we're praying to God and do, does he really hear us? Are, are our expectations really going to be met? This is what Jeremiah 33 says. The Lord who made the earth, the Lord who forms it to establish it, the Lord is his name, says this, church, call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you Great and incomprehensible things you do not know. That is the God that we pray to. So anytime we feel the temptation to feel that God is not actually going to answer our prayers, the question in your mind when it comes up, is God even listening? Throw that out. This is the phrase. This is the question that we need to replace it with. How will God answer me? 
Not is he even listening, how will he answer me? Because our God is great. Amen, church? And he will answer us and speak incomprehensible things to us. And let's see how that happens in verse 11. Zechariah is praying, and an angel of the Lord appears to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of Israel to the Lord, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. God was listening all along. G. Campbell Morgan, he says, all the history of the Bible is the history of the extraordinary touching the ordinary, of the supernatural acting upon and beyond the supernatural. And God's provision to Zechariah, this answered prayer to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, it comes in kind of twofold. First, by sending Gabriel, by sending Gabriel to answer Zechariah's personal prayer. Notice the, 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 the um, intention that Gabriel has of God's message to Zechariah is not addressing first his position like we think. It's addressing his deepest unfulfilled desire, his deepest insecurity. It's the first thing he says, apart from don't be afraid, is you will have a son. That thing, that issue that you came into the temple that you didn't really want to talk about, is the first thing I'm going to address. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing how God does that? How he brings that out of us by addressing it head on? It's like, I know that you had, Zechariah, you had the prayer requests on you that you came in. You had your agenda. Let's go through all of that and let's bring the thing that's really been bothering you the most. God has been answering your prayers. He has been hearing you and you will bear a son. And you will bear a son. But more than, even more than that, we will go out to the communal element of it. There is a twofold provision in that not only is Gabriel speaking the word of God to Zechariah to, to meet his personal requests, his personal desires, but he's also drawing out to show what's going to happen through that son to all of Israel. What is God going to be providing? He's going to be providing John the Baptist. That's when everyone goes, boom. Boom, thank you. Thank you. 
John, yes, there we go, there we go. John the Baptist, he's the Elijah prophet. He's coming, he's huge. This is the, this is the guy. He is sent to be the forerunner for Jesus. He's the herald who prepares the way for the coming king. His life would be marked by constantly living in the company with the Holy Spirit to fulfill not only Malachi's prophecy that Gabriel spoke, but also to be fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40, verses 3, for five, three through 5, where Isaiah says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled, and the uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What an answered prayer request. It is not a question of, is God even listening? But it's how will God answer me? Even if there had been a silence for 400 years, our God is great. Our God is a great God. Not only would Elizabeth have this child, but that child would be great to the Lord filled with the Holy Spirit to prepare God's people for Jesus, for the coming Messiah. So I want to look at three, three dimensions here of God's provision worth considering that we find here. First, when God answers our prayers, when God speaks to us, when he provides for us, he's providing for my joy, for your joy, personally, is a personal individual element to that. As a child, he tells us to pray to him as our father. So as I grow closer to him, I begin to experience these subtle prayers, these subtle moments of faith, these subtle providences working in my life. And in that, as I grow as a Christian, as I practice these spiritual disciplines, as I walk with the Lord and the Holy Spirit's working in me and through me, I begin to experience a deeper joy as a Christian. I begin to experience God's provision for myself that brings joy despite all kind of odds, despite all bad circumstances or different moments and seasons, I'm walking with God because as I've walked with him, I look back on the past and I see how he's answered my prayers before. And then when I'm living out in the future, I look back on moments that I never considered before that he was actually moving all along. I hope that resonates with, with you, Christian, as you've kind of looked back on your testimony and you're starting to see. Which, by the way, that's why you should write down your testimony. That's why you should practice your testimony to share. Because the more you say it, the deeper the joy becomes when you start to see that this is my God. This is my Father. This is my Jesus. He is my joy. Second provision is... God's provision magnifies his glory. It magnifies his glory in these movements of grace. 
when grace comes on the disgraced, on the suffering, on the sinner, on the shameful, when forgiveness is found there, God is glorified. So when we come, we come to give God glory. We receive his word, we hear it, we say it, we talk about it, we sing about it so that God would be magnified, his glory would be magnified and that joy within us would get even deeper. That joy in us would get a little bit deeper. But here's the third thing. God's provision is for our good. It's for our good as a church as the body together. And what do I mean by that? I mean that God's blessings on your life bless me too. The movements and evidences of grace that you experience are also received and blessed on me. Each of us matters. Each of us is a member in the body through Ephesians 4. So the spiritual health and the spiritual well-being of each of us matters tremendously because that provides blessing and assurance and grace and love and peace and mercy throughout the entire body. Your blessings are our blessings. That's the beautiful thing about seeing people get baptized is that's the beautiful thing about a seasoned disciple, someone who's walked a life of living with the Lord, of going through different trials and seasons, then being paired up to disciple a new believer. Isn't it, isn't it awesome if you've been with a new believer and all of a sudden it's like everything is spiritual because everything's happening now at once. And they're like, I didn't think about it in this way, but now I thought about it that way. Things are coming together. My life is exploding, right? And you're there and you're like, this blesses me because I just get to watch this. But it also blesses me because I'm reminded of just how powerful my God is. When we come together to worship, it is for this, God's provision is for our good as we give him glory. And then we walk away and we have a joy, an individual, personal, felt joy because of it. But it's in light of that, that moment, this God answering this dramatic provision of prayer that I think we come to the most relatable moment of the whole story. The whole story comes to a head when Zechariah looks up, he sees the angel, the angel prophesies to him saying that all of your prayers have been answered. Everything that you were hoping for, that deep unfulfilled desire is actually going to come even tenfold more than you could even imagine. And Zechariah's response is unbelief. Verse 18, how can I know this? What? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. I like saying this with some sass. Now listen. I feel like it's there. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah's response, after all that just happening, 
stuff is met with an immediate act of disobedience and disbelief, met with unbelief. And so it's brought him a divine discipline. Okay, Zechariah, well, you will not be able to speak until these things are fulfilled. Now, there's two ways that we could look at this. We can kind of look at this from the lens of judgment, or we could look at this through the lens of God's perspective and grace. And let's kind of see, we're going to go on that side because that's more fun. And we're going to look over there. Here are two thoughts when we're thinking about God silencing Zechariah. Silencing the first moment when this happens, when, when Zechariah silenced, doubt and unbelief are silenced. Because doubt and unbelief are attempting to override this moment of extraordinary divinity. And that's what we want in our lives too. We want God to silence our unbelief. We want God to silence unbelief, which is in the world, which is designed to suppress the movements of God's grace in our lives. So when we see that, it's actually a grace that there was silence because the silence silenced unbelief. Like Gabriel, we have been called to serve as God's messengers to a barren world where doubt and unbelief try to constantly get the upper hand. But as we walk in faith, we want God to silence doubt and silence unbelief. Because the gospel shining in a fallen world graciously shows that we can come to him in those moments of silence Maybe if we're tempted to experience it, we can say the prayer that we find in Mark chapter 9. I do believe, help my unbelief. That's one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite sayings in the entire Bible because it's so relatable. I can hear all of these different moments of, of grace happening in people's lives and I can still walk away and have moments of doubt and unbelief in my own life. And what does God say? How dare you? No, he says, pray that you would believe and that I'd help your unbelief. Second perspective that I want to show is the signs. So let's read a little bit farther. Verse 21 through 23, it says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. So he's just there for a really long time. There's a huge crowd outside. It's funny. Verse 22, when he did not come out, or when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. So this is, the, the, this is the perspe God's perspective of grace that I want us to look at when we see this sign. The irony is, is that Zechariah's silence... Zachariah's silence is, even though he couldn't share his words, 
The sign itself spoke loudly for the people. Because the people were waiting to see God move again. And now all of a sudden, their priest can't talk anymore. And he's like trying to make signs for them to show them what happened. That silence was the sign that God was moving for the first time in 400 years. It spoke loudly. Even though the events would, wouldn't unfold right there, that that mystery would be for a little longer, God was moving again. And that is grace. That is grace that the people get to see. But let's keep reading where we get to see these extraordinary graces as they've happened. God breaking through these ordinary events to find themselves, if we're looking out at the crowd, we're now going to zoom back in to a quiet Elizabeth at her home, where it says in verse 24 and 25, we get to see this grace and disgrace. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. It's beautiful to see how God moves personally. He displays his glory and then he moves in and around each other. And Luke's images of this gospel, of this theme that we find, I mentioned there's that woman. Well, now that woman who is suffering, that suffering woman who was barren, is now with child. And that child is now going to be the hope that we get to see. And I mentioned to you that there's the image that was put, that we walk into this, this narrative from, of the sunset, right? Of the sun and the darkness and night. At the end of this chapter, Zechariah, when his voice is given back, this is what he says. Because of God's merciful compassion, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God has given us grace and he has removed our disgrace because Jesus, Jesus is that hope that the sunrise shows. And Jesus would not just live a life of healing people. He would take on their disgrace. He would take on all of our shame. He would take on all of our unfulfilled desires, all of our unmet anxieties, all of our fears and worries, everything that we bring to the table as humans. He would put all of that on himself so that that disgrace, whether it's personally felt or communally experienced or witnessed, so that it would be removed and put into grace. The story of Jesus for sinners and sufferers like you and me is a story of a spiritually barren people 
wandering through the dark, waiting sunrise, praying for sunrise, and it actually happening, and it's surprising everyone. Grace came for your joy, for God's glory, and for our good. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he has done on the cross for us. Something that we could never do. And God, we thank you that we can come before you with all of our insecurities, with all of our discouragement, with all of our fears and unfulfilled desires so that we would come into your presence and the question of, are you even listening, is no longer there. But it's, how will you answer me? We believe that you answer our prayers because you are great, because you speak to us and you speak incomprehensible things that you show us just how powerful you are. Thank you, God, for your joy that you give us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. In your precious name, amen.